Good morning. Happy to be here with you again this morning to share God's Word with you. Our passage for the morning is going to be John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. But before we go there together, I want us to go back to the beginning of John's Gospel. And in the beginning of John's Gospel, in the first 18 verses, we find his prologue. And as we all know, the the prologue is something that introduces a book or a body of text. And sometimes we can be tempted to skip over the prologue because we think that this is nice, but it doesn't really have much to do with the the main part. But we should not even think of doing that when it comes to John's prologue. Because in this prologue, He introduces to us the unfolding story of Jesus coming to be one of us, live among us, to die for our sins, rise from the dead, and to purchase our salvation for us. But also in the prologue, he introduces several themes that can be found throughout his gospel. And one of the themes that we are going to talk about today is introduced in John chapter 1, verse 6. The first five verses talk about how Jesus is the Word of God, how He was with God, how He was life, and that life was the light of all humanity. And then this is what it says starting in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. These verses introduce to us the theme of being a witness or testifying about Jesus. And there are three things from these verses that we need to pay attention to as we get ready to go to John chapter 15. The first thing is that John was sent by God to testify about Jesus, which means that he was authorized by God for that specific purpose. The second thing is that John's witness and testimony caused people to stop and pay attention. It was disruptive in that way. Many people came to him wanting to find out what this guy was all about, what he was teaching, and many were baptized and believed his message. And then the third thing is that the purpose of John's witness was to prepare people for the coming of Jesus by urging them to repent and believe in him. So, he was sent from God. His witness was disruptive. It caused people to pay attention. And his purpose was to lead people to faith in Jesus. So let's keep these three things in the back of our minds as we get ready to go to John chapter 15. Last week, Pastor Tom preached to us from John 15, verses 18 through 25, and he talked about how the world is going to hate those who follow Jesus in trust and obedience. And for the original disciples, there was a heaviness to those words when they heard them because they knew that there was a lot at stake for them if they followed Jesus. Things like rejection from family, rejection from their community, and even death. And then later, if you go down to John 16, verse 1, Jesus says that he told them these things so that they will not fall away. 
And right in the middle of those passages, we find our verses for this morning, verses 26 and 27. So let's read those together. Jesus said, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So right after Jesus prepares his disciples to expect hatred from the world, and right before he tells them his reasoning for saying these things, sandwiched there right in the middle are these verses where Jesus is giving them hope. He tells them he is going to send to them the Holy Spirit, whom he refers to as the Advocate and the Spirit of Truth, who will come from the Father. The Holy Spirit will testify or witness about Jesus and then he will help the disciples to do the same. And here again, we have our theme of witness that was introduced by the ministry of John the Baptist. Except this time, instead of John the Baptist being the one sent from God, it is the Holy Spirit who is going to be sent from God to testify about Jesus through the disciples. I want to briefly talk about three significant things that we can learn from these verses that can help us understand how to be a faithful witness for Jesus. The first thing is we're going to talk about is Jesus calling the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth. The second thing is the significance of the Spirit coming from the Father. And then the third thing is the meaning of the word testify. And then I would like to look at some examples and then talk about ways that we can be faithful witnesses in our world today. So first, let's look at why Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. John writes in his gospel about two opposing forces that are contradictory and at war with each other. The way of life and following Jesus, and the way of death and following the world ruled by the evil one. And it was also common in Jesus' day for people to write about different spirits, opposing spirits, spirits of truth and spirits of error. And with this dualism and the disciples' familiarity with spirits of truth and spirits of error, it is significant that twice now, once in John 14 and now here in John 15, that Jesus has referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. So what was he wanting his disciples to understand? He wanted them to understand that there are indeed false teachings and philosophies out there that deceive many and lead people away from following Jesus. And the disciples are going to need help in discerning what is true about Jesus and what is not true about him. The Holy Spirit will come from the Father, and he is not just a spirit of truth, but he is the spirit of truth. The Spirit will testify to the world what is true about Jesus and how to live faithfully to him. The spirit of truth will help the disciples recognize dangerous and deceitful ways of living that are opposed to Jesus. The spirit will help them believe true things about Jesus and protect them from following after false messiahs and saviors. The spirit of truth will help them witness and testify to the truth of Jesus even amidst intense persecution and hatred from the world. By calling the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth, Jesus was connecting the Spirit to himself. 
Because we know in John 14, Jesus referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit will come and testify to the truth about who Jesus is so the disciples will not follow deceitful teachings and beliefs that come from the evil one. Second, Jesus says that the Spirit of truth will come to them from the Father. Jesus will send him and he will come from the Father. So first there was John the Baptist who was sent by God to witness and testify about the coming of Jesus. Then Jesus came and the works that he did, the miracles he, he performed, the things that he taught, they all testified that he was indeed the Savior of the world. But now, after Jesus rises from the dead and ascends back to the Father, the Holy Spirit is the one who is sent to us from God and who will testify to the truth about Jesus and help the disciples continue the work and ministry of Jesus in the world. The disciples can rest assured knowing that the Holy Spirit has been sent to them from the Father, not from the world, and will bear witness to Jesus and help them do the same. Knowing that Jesus has been sent to them from the Father and that the Holy Spirit will come from the Father, they can know and be sure that the work and ministry of Jesus will continue. And so this brings us to the third point, and that's the meaning of the word testify. If you read in the NIV, we see the Spirit and disciples will testify about Jesus, but if you read in other translations, you might see the word witness there. And these two words are interchangeable. They mean the same thing because if you are a witness, you are testifying to the truth about what you have seen, heard, or experienced. In 1 John chapter 1, the opening lines say this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And that is the essence of what it means to testify and to witness about something. If you think of when we hear people giving their testimony, we are listening to what people have seen, what they've heard, what they have experienced from Jesus in their own life. We are listening to how the Spirit has testified to them about the truth of Jesus and how they have come to believe that he is their Savior, that he died for their sins, that he rose again and has forgiven them. Bearing witness and testifying is, is not only done with words, but it's also done with actions. Jesus said in John 10.25 that the works he is doing testify about him. And the Greek word used for testify is where we get the word martyr from. It is a legal term, and it has the idea of a prosecution, showing that the opposing party is guilty and wrong. So when Jesus says that the Holy Spirit and the disciples will testify about him, there are a few things that we can gather from this Greek word to where we get the word testify. One, it's a testimony or a witness that shows the other party is guilty or in the wrong, and then, by showing that others are guilty and wrong, the person doing the testifying is putting their life on the risk. And this is why the word martyr eventually became to be associated with Christians who died for their faith. If you think of the example of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, he was a faithful witness for Jesus, 
whose testimony condemned those who heard it and those who did not want anything to do with God. And he was eventually stoned to death because of his witness for Jesus. And it was the Holy Spirit in him who was doing the testifying, who was doing the convicting of those who heard. Jesus said that it would be the Holy Spirit who will come and testify about him. But the way the Spirit will do it will be by abiding in the disciples and testifying to the world through them. They will not be um, able to be faithful witnesses on their own without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be their helper and their advocate to remain faithful in witnessing, even in the midst of intense persecution. And if not for the Spirit's help, then they would fall away because of all the pressure from the hatred of the world. So from this passage in John 15, we can learn that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth who will testify to who Jesus is, and he will help the disciples to be faithful witnesses, even at the risk of their own lives. And this is not a passive kind of witness. It is a witness that will show that God is true and the world is guilty. The example of Stephen is a fitting example of that kind of faithful witness. But there are other examples of this theme of witness that are found in John's gospel. First, you have the Samaritan woman. Jesus met her and revealed her to, to her that he was the Messiah. And then after talking with Jesus, she ran into town and she exclaimed to everybody she saw, come see a man who told me everything about me. Could this be the Messiah? And then people followed her back to Jesus and believed. And then at the very end of that same story, it says that the people told the woman, it's no longer because of your testimony that we believe, but it's because we have seen and heard for ourselves and have come to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And then another example is found in John chapter 9. Whereas the story with the woman at the well resulted in many people coming to believe through her witness and testimony, this story has a different outcome. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples come upon a man who had been born blind. And the disciples asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? And then Jesus says, neither him nor his parents sinned. He's born this way because the works of God are going to be displayed through him. So Jesus goes on to heal the man, and as people hear word about this, the Pharisees learn about it, and then they call the man to come stand before him and testify about what is done. And the man tells them plainly, this, this man called Jesus made mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go wash in the pool, now I can see. But the Pharisees' hearts were so hard that they could not accept the man's testimony. So then they called his parents, and they said, is this your son? Tell us how he can see now. But his parents were afraid of the Jews. And they were afraid because the Jews had already made it clear that if anybody confesses Jesus as the Christ, they are going to be put out of the synagogue. And that's a big deal. It's not like in our time where if we get kicked out of a church, we can just go to the church down the road. Getting kicked out of the synagogue had a huge impact on a person's livelihood, on their social status, and on their well-being. So this man's parents were afraid. So they told him, 
Our son is of age. Ask him. So they called the man back, and they asked him again. And they tried to get him to confess that Jesus was not the Christ. But the man kept saying the truth. He told them plainly what had happened, even though his own understanding of Jesus wasn't fully there yet. So eventually they did kick him out of the synagogue. And when Jesus heard about that, he found him, and he came to him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man says, Tell me, so I can believe in him. Jesus reveals to him that he is the Son of Man. And then it says, The man that was blind worshipped him. So the Samaritan's woman's story, her witness resulted in many people coming to believe. But in this one, it just resulted in hard hearts becoming even harder. And I want to draw our attention, though, to the fact that it was not only the words of the Samaritan woman or the words of the man who was blind who did the testifying, but it was the work of Jesus in their lives that truly did the testifying. It was Jesus telling the Samaritan woman everything he knew about her, and it was Jesus healing the blind man that was the real testimony to who he was. His work in their lives was the witness that caused people to stop and pay attention. These two instances of people witnessing in John happened before the Holy Spirit would come to everyone who would believe. But as Jesus said in our passage this morning, there would come a day when he would send the Holy Spirit from the Father, and when the Holy Spirit would come, he would dwell in believers, and he would help them carry on the works of Jesus and testify to the world about the truth of Jesus. And this is not just a message that was for the original disciples. This is a message that is for us today, too. All who believe and have the Holy Spirit are also called to bear witness by living like Jesus and doing the things that he did. And the Holy Spirit helps us live like Jesus, produce fruit in our lives, and the Holy Spirit works through us to testify to the world about the truth of who Jesus is. But a big question that we face today is how do we do this in our current time and place? A big topic of discussion today among different Christian churches, organizations, ministries, if you listen to various Christian podcasts, a big topic and point of discussion is how do Christians witness effectively in our world that is vastly different from the world of the original disciples. Alan Noble is a writer, and in his book, Disruptive Witness, he writes this. The work of conviction and calling is the Holy Spirit's, but different times and cultures present different barriers to hearing and comprehending the good news. Identifying, understanding, and overcoming these barriers with God's grace and wisdom has always been the Christian's holy task. Whether our neighbors are devout Jews, Greeks worshiping an unknown God, or contemporary Americans. So how do we witness well to a world that has more access to information than it knows what to do with? How do we witness well to people living in a country that is divided? How do we witness well to people who are leaving churches left and right? And not only leaving churches, but leaving the faith altogether. How do we witness well to people in a world that are addicted to busyness, productivity, and is afraid of silence? 
the Holy Spirit helped the disciples and the apostles discern how to testify about Jesus in their time and place in ways that people would understand and in ways that would point beyond themselves to Jesus and in ways that would cause people to stop and pay attention. And the Holy Spirit can help us do the same today. So earlier, I asked us to keep three things in the back of our minds about the ministry and witness of John the Baptist. And those three things were that John was sent from God, his witness caused people to stop and pay attention, and his purpose was to lead people to faith in Jesus. John the Baptist was sent by God to testify about Jesus. When John's ministry was complete, Jesus was sent by the Father to come live among us, and his works testified about him. But then after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended back to the Father, now it is the Holy Spirit who has been sent to us from Jesus and the Father to help us testify about Jesus and to continue his works. I want to talk about some ways I believe that we can witness in our world today with the Spirit working through us that will cause people to stop and pay attention and point people towards belief in Jesus like the witness of John the Baptist. I want to say a brief note. I believe evangelism is a vital component to a faithful witness, and we should always be ready to provide an answer for the hope that we have, just like Scripture tells us to do. We should always seek and pray for opportunities to share our faith with other people. But I'm not going to give us strategies on how to better share our faith today. But instead, today I'm going to talk about ways, aspects of our witness that have more to do with our beliefs and actions. And how, if we cultivate these things, they can prepare the way for the gospel message to take root in people's hearts. So, Alan Noble, in that same book I just mentioned, he writes about the parable of the sower. We are all familiar with that parable. Many here probably have been taught that parable since they were a child growing up in Sunday school. But as familiar as we are with the parable of the sower, Noble asked the question, when we think of the good soil, how often do we think about how the soil became good in the first place? He suggests that the soil first had to be cultivated by being plowed. And if you're familiar with plowing, it's, it's an act that is disruptive. It unsettles the, the ground, to use his words. And so I want to talk about some aspects of our witness with which we are called to be faithful and that will testify to the truth about Jesus and unsettle the ground and the soil of our current culture. Not in violent ways, not in obnoxious ways, but in more subtle, subversive ways. And the first aspect of our witness that will unsettle the soil of our culture is that of our beliefs. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, like we just talked about, and not of error. When we have come to believe in Jesus, it is because the Holy Spirit has illuminated to us the truth about Jesus, the truth about his death and resurrection on our behalf. What we believe about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the most important belief that we hold because it affects our standing before God and it dictates whether we will be a faithful witness in his name. 
Why is this so? Trevin Wax is another writer, and in one of his books he writes about how the early church thought about the importance of believing what is true and orthodox about God. He says, The early Christians saw right belief as vital because of its connection to right worship of the one true God. So right belief about God leads to right worship of God. And this does not mean that we won't be able to worship God unless we have everything figured out about God in our heads. And it does not mean that if somebody unintentionally has an erroneous belief about God of a secondary nature, that they are not saved or cannot correctly worship Him. What this means is that the Spirit of Truth, as He indwells us, He will help us to grow in maturity and knowledge of God. And as we grow, we will learn increasingly about what it means to truly follow Him and to worship Him. But just as in Jesus' time, there are deceitful spirits and teachings and philosophies in our world today that lead people away from right belief about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Even as Christians, it can be easy to slip into error without even realizing it. So how do we distinguish the voice of the Spirit of Truth from all of the other false teachings and ideas that are competing for our devotion? We can find some help if we jump from John's Gospel to the letter of 1 John. In 1 John, John is writing to encourage a group of Christians that they are indeed walking in the truth and walking in the light. And he's writing to help them know how to discern what is true about Jesus and what is not. And in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, this is what he writes to them. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. So John tells us not to just simply believe what we are told because it might sound good or reasonable or pleasing to our ears, but we are told to actively test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. Teachings that acknowledge that Jesus has come in the flesh are from God, and teachings that do not acknowledge Jesus are not from God. And these teachings are very important at the time of this letter, because at this time, there was all sorts of false teachings and heresies going around about the nature and divinity of Jesus. So how do we test the spirits to know we are believing rightly about God? Well, first, we need to know the scriptures. We have to let them become a part of us. We have to meditate on them. We have to memorize them. We have to feed on them as if our life depended on it. That's the first thing. But also, when challenges arose in the early church about what Christians should believe, councils got together and they produced what we now know as the ancient Christian creeds. And there's three main ones. There's the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And these creeds were designed to be like boundary lines. 
to help instill the right beliefs about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there were so many false teachings and heresies that were floating around the times of the early church and even years later and even into today that Christians came together under the witness and guidance of the Holy Spirit and crafted together doctrines that would help the church's witness before God and the world by remaining faithful to the truth of Scripture. Even today, many churches across the world confess these creeds on a weekly basis. And I believe that a recovery of the practice of churches confessing these creeds together will help the church maintain a faithful witness with our beliefs by being a constant reminder of right belief, leading to right worship of God. So I want to briefly look at these a little bit to help us understand what I mean. So the most well-known creed that we're all familiar with is the Apostles' Creed. It's one of the earliest creeds, and it's probably the most succinct creed. We even sing about it sometimes here on Sunday morning, this I believe, and you might also be familiar with Rich Mullen's classic song called Creed. If you don't know what I'm talking about, shame on you, and you should go home and look up that song. But in that song, written about the Apostles' Creed, there is the line that says, No, I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. And the ancient creeds contain truth that, if we hold to and genuinely believe, will make our witness disruptive to the world around us. But I also like to look at a little part of a creed that we may not be that familiar with. The Athanasian Creed was developed and born out of a time when many false teachings were being spread about the nature and divinity of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want us to read the opening line of the Creed to understand how important correct belief about the Trinity was to the early church. This is what the opening line of the Athanasian Creed says. Whoever wants to be saved should above all cling to the Catholic faith. Now don't panic. That does not mean that we should revert to Catholicism. The Catholic with a lowercase c just means universal, the universal faith. So whoever wants to be saved should above all cling to the Catholic faith. Whoever does not guard it whole and inviolable will doubtless perish eternally. Whoa. That is a strong statement. And the reason this is such a strong statement is, is not because our beliefs are like a checklist where when we go to stand before God, he has a checklist right in front of him, and he's checking off, you believe this, you believe this, you believe this, up, oh, you missed this, off you go. The reason this is such a strong statement is because the early church and the writers of the creeds knew what, that what we genuinely believe about God will have a direct effect on how we worship and serve God, thus having a direct effect on our witness about him. And then the, the Athanasian Creed goes on to say, now this is Catholic faith. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. And then the rest of the creed fleshes out what true faith in the Trinity looks like. We don't have time to look at the whole creed this morning because it's the longest of all the creeds. But I encourage you on your own time to, to look these up, become familiar with them. As we confess the creeds together 
and are constantly reminded of orthodox right belief about God, the Holy Spirit can use them to continually testify the truth to us, to remind us of the truth, because we forget very, very easily. What we believe is strong and strange to many. To some, what we believe will be like the response to the witness of the Samaritan woman. They will want to come and see for themselves what this is all about. But to others, even most others, our beliefs will get the response that Jesus got when he told people to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Some people, the disciples, came and told him, where else can we go? But many others left because the teaching was too hard for them to accept. And the answer for us today is not to cheapen orthodox right belief about God, but to maintain strong belief in the historic teachings that are manifested in the historic Christian creeds. And as we cultivate right belief about God, it leads to right worship of God. And worship, we have to remember, is more than music or singing. To worship God always comes back to loving him and loving our neighbor as ourself. And this leads to the second aspect of our witness that I want to talk about. And it's another lesson we can learn from the early church. Caring for the poor and the needy. The Didache is a document we have from the early church. It's contained in a collection of writings called the Apostolic Fathers, and it's writings and letters that were written either at the time of the apostles or around the time of the apostles. They're not considered scripture, but they do give us a glimpse of the life and the teachings and the struggles of the early church. The Didache contains instructions to Gentiles on how to live faithfully to Jesus. It's kind of like a rule of life for Gentile Christians. And the opening lines read like this. The teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles by the 12 apostles. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between these two ways. So the writer first describes the way of life and then goes on to describe the way of death. And to keep things positive this morning, I want to read the description of the way of death. That was a joke. But, <laughs> but I am going to read it. So. And as we read it, I want us to pay attention to how many times it talks about the needy, the poor, and the oppressed. And it says this. But the way of death is this. First of all, it is evil and completely cursed. It is the way of persecutors of good people, of those who hate truth, love a lie, do not know the reward of righteousness, do not adhere to what is good or righteous judgment, who are vigilant not for what is good but for what is evil, from whom gentleness and patience are far removed, who love worthless things, pursue a reward, have no mercy for the poor, do not work on half of the oppressed, do not know the one who has made them corruptors of God's creation, who turn away from someone in need, who oppress the afflicted, are advocates of the wealthy, lawless judges of the poor, utterly sinful. May you be delivered, children, from all these things. So did you notice how many times in that paragraph he referenced the needy, the poor, the oppressed, and how not paying attention to those things is connected to the way of death. 
Caring for the poor was a vital witness to the early church. And they didn't do it simply to be a good witness to people. They did it because they couldn't help but respond that way because of the love that God has shown them. They saw and received the love that God had shown them through Jesus, dying for them, rising from the dead, and in turn could not help but show that same love to others, especially the poor and the needy. In 1 John 3, 17-18, it says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. In Galatians 2.10, when the apostles finally recognized that Paul was indeed an apostle sent from God, and they commissioned him to go to the Gentiles, Paul wrote, All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Caring for the poor and needy was in the very DNA of the early church, and it should be written in, into ours as well. No matter what kind of community we are in, if we look with intention, we will always find those around us who are in need. Jesus said in Mark 14, 7, The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them whenever you want, but you will not always have me. And while this was not the main point of that verse, it can be drawn from it that we will always have those in need around us. And sometimes we ourselves may even be those people in need. To cultivate this aspect of the church's witness in the world today, we must seek out those in need with intention, not to be seen by others, but because of the love of God poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We need to think about ways that we can help the poor and needy within the context of our circumstances. For example, a family with small children may not be able to do as much as a single person or a couple without children, but no matter what our circumstances, we're all called to discern how the Holy Spirit is leading us to help those in need around us. And as we do that together as a body, it will be a witness that demonstrates to the world around us what it looks like when Jesus is king. And then the last aspect of our witness that, if cultivated, will unsettle the soil of our culture, it's the hardest of all. Loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. We know the commandment of Jesus to love our enemies and to pray for those who mistreat us, but it is incredibly hard to do when we are in the middle of it or when we feel like our faith is being attacked or we personally are being attacked because of our faith. As many of you know, Tim Keller, who was one of, if not the most influential Christian pastors and thinkers in recent decades, he recently died from pancreatic cancer. And Keller, as most other influential Christian leaders and thinkers, was not free from his critics. He was not free from those who tried to malign him and discredit his teaching and theology. But if you read anything someone wrote about him after he died, one of the things, one of the most common things that comes up about him is how he did not respond in kind to those who were against him. 
Multiple times I have read and heard people talk about the way he loved those who disagreed with him and held him in contempt. He would not respond to evil with evil. He was able to remain steady and kind when he was attacked. He saw his opponents as human beings made in the image of God. And he carried with him the same attitude found in Jesus, which says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. His witness stood out in a culture that responds to anger with more anger. And we need more Christian leaders and thinkers like this today. Too often, we find ourselves responding in like manner to the evil and malice that is in the world. Too often, we find ourselves using the same words and anger that characterize the climates of the culture around us when things do not happen the way we want them to or the way that we, should, the way that we think they should happen or when we feel like we're being attacked. Too often, we can become defensive and take on postures of vengeance and retribution, and too often, we can respond to hatred with more hatred. And once again, drawing from the example of the witness of the early church, they were known for not responding to evil with more evil. They were known for responding to maltreatment with kindness and even respect for those who were attacking them. And an early church Christian letter also contained in the Apostolic Fathers called the Epistle to Diognetus, the writer describes the attitudes of his fellow Christians when persecuted, and he says this, they love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. And when they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. When the Spirit of Christ indwells us, he pours out the love of God into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the only one that can help us love our enemies the way that Jesus did. Just like Tim Keller's witness, Loving our enemies is a witness that causes the world to stop and wonder, why in the world are they doing that? It makes no sense in a world that teaches, teaches us to hit back if someone hits us. My grandfather actually taught me that when I was little. Before I was getting ready to go off to school, this wasn't like middle school or high school, this was like right before I was getting ready to go off to kindergarten. My grandfather would take me aside and he said, now Cameron, what do you do if someone hits you? And I would respond and say, hit them back. <laughs> I never had to hit anybody back, thankfully. And I loved my grandfather and I understood what he was trying to teach me. He was trying to teach me to stand up for myself. And of course, we should teach our kids to stand up to evil against bullying. And there's always something to be said about self-defense. But I do not believe that Christians hitting back when the world hits them is a faithful witness to Jesus. When Christians respond to hate with love and to anger with kindness and patience, that is a disarming weapon and a witness that will cause people to stop 
and scratch their heads just like they did at Jesus. And I wish I had some practical steps that we could take to learn how to love our enemies better, but I don't. But I do know that it starts with recognizing that the person we think of as our enemy is a person made in the image of God just like us and as someone for whom Jesus died for, just like us. Then we must remember the command from Jesus to treat others the way we would want to be treated. I want to go back to the the letter that's called the Didache again, and we already read the way of death, but I want us to read the way of life. And this is what it says at the beginning. It says, Now this is the way of life. First, you shall love God who made you. Second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But whatever you do not wish to happen to you, do not do to another. To love our enemies, we are going to have to use our imaginations a little bit. We're going to have to use our imaginations to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and think about how we would feel if someone responded to us the way that our flesh often wants to respond when we are attacked or mistreated because of our faith. And if we would not want something done to us, then we should not do it to others. By doing this, well, first, this does not excuse justice for wrongdoing. But by doing this and cultivating this attitude in our hearts, the Holy Spirit will change the attitude of our hearts. And he will change the way that we see and think about our enemies. Our vision will change from seeing them as objects of vengeance to humans just like us who are lost and in need of finding repentance and mercy in the love and kindness of Jesus. There are many other aspects of our witness that we could talk about today, but these are three that we need to pay attention to. So to recap, it all starts with the witness of what we believe, because that affects our worship of God and our behavior in the world. And as we cultivate the witness of our beliefs, that leads to right worship of God, and right worship of God manifests itself in love for him and love for our neighbor, especially the poor and needy around us. And then as we cultivate love for God and neighbor, the Holy Spirit helps us cultivate the witness of loving our enemies. As the Spirit of Truth helps us cultivate these aspects of our witness, just like the witness of John the Baptist, the world around us will stop and pay attention. Some will want to come and see what this is all about. Many others will just scoff and walk away. But we need to remember that it is the Holy Spirit who does the testifying, and it is the Holy Spirit who convicts of the truth. And as we seek to be faithful in our witness, let us pray for the soil of our culture to be plowed and disrupted so that seeds of the gospel can be planted and bear fruit for the kingdom of God until the day when Jesus returns and makes all things new. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your spirit. Lord, thank you for the gift of your son to be our savior. Without him, we would have no hope. And without your spirit, we would have no hope of being able to please you or live the way that Jesus did. Lord, I pray that through your spirit, you would convict us, 
of areas in our life that we need to bring before you. Lord, that you would convict us of areas of our witness that haven't been faithful to you. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us by your Spirit to discern how to be faithful witnesses for you today. In all of our interactions, in all the places we go, in all the people that we meet, I pray that, that you would put in our minds and in our hearts love for you and seeking your kingdom first before all things. We ask for your help this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.